0: in another state. Yay! I don't know if you've heard, but there in California we've been locked down just a little bit. This is actually the first time I'm preaching somewhere outside the church I'm part of in something like 19 months. So thank you for inviting me. (laughs) And uh, thank you, those of you who are joining us by live stream. Thanks for being with us in spirit. We are with you in spirit. This morning I want to talk about this idea of an unhurried life and. Just as a text to put this on, a foundation on the screen, you'll see this passage from the Gospel of Luke. It's one of those little passing comments in the Gospel between stories. Sometimes those passing comments teach us a lot. It says, the news about him spread all the more so that crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But, but, Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. See the juxtaposition, the busy, excited crowds. But, Jesus often withdrew to pray. There's this remarkable rhythm that's implied here. So when I talk about an unhurried life, the first line of my book sounds like this. I'm a recovering speed addict. This is apparently an AA meeting, right? It's a... I'm a recovering speed addict, and I don't mean the drug. I'm talking about my soul. And I use the language of addiction because that's how serious my struggle with hurry is. And when I talk about hurry, I'm not mostly talking about outward speed. I'm not talking about freeway speed. I'm not talking about walking speed or talking speed or working speed. I'm talking about something deeper. I'm talking about our souls, about how fast they sometimes rev So hurry for me has sometimes looked like frantic drivenness to get one more thing done in a day as though my life depended on it. Sometimes it's looked like anxiety that drives me to more and more desperate and driven busyness. And sometimes it's looked like a deep-seated craving for the affirmation and approval of others that shapes what I say and what I do. I'm talking about hurry in here. And let me clarify something. Dallas Willard was the one who said, don't make the mistake of thinking busy and hurried are the exact same thing. They're not. Busy, that's your calendar. That's your to-do list. Jesus had busy days often. The text talks about a crowd coming from morning till night. Busy, that's out here. Hurried, that's in here. This is what I want to talk about. I think you can be busy and unhurried. I think you can be profoundly engaged in all of the good work God has given you, and you can do every little bit of it with an unhurried soul. And I think that's one of the secrets of Jesus. His ability to be present to every single person who crossed his path. Do you you feel and see that in the Gospels? I do. When I talk about an unhurried life, I want to talk about it in the language of pacing. What is the pace of an unhurried life? And I'm going to use four words to describe that pace. I hope it will help you get a sense and a feel for what it is that I think this life is about. And so first, an unhurried life is a life at the pace of prayer. That passage... The crowds just keep coming, but, right, I landed on that word and I paused after that word. It's a word that says there's there's a contrast, there's a rhythm, there's something and something else that's working together, but Jesus often withdrew to lonely places to pray. In the context, Jesus has just healed a man covered with leprosy, it says, and he tells the man, don't tell anyone. Which in my instinct seems like the exact not wrong thing to to say. You let everyone know. We want this getting out. My instinct is make sure, make sure good things get published. And yet Jesus says, don't tell anyone, but of course the, the leper can't help himself. He tells everyone, and the crowds come and they keep coming because this is amazing what's happening. And so it's in the middle of all of that excitement and crowd and need that it says, Jesus often withdrew to lonely places to pray. So I want to unpack that sentence. It begins with two simple words. Jesus withdrew. He stepped away from the crowds at times. There was a regular habit of disengagement from his public ministry to simply be in the presence of his Father. Now, I'll just be honest. My instinct, when the crowds are excited about something I do, I just want to keep meeting with the crowds. Jesus' instinct apparently is slightly different than mine. Maybe he's right. Maybe his way is good. It says that he withdrew. I would even say maybe he withdraws from the crowd for the sake of the crowd. If you're always available to the crowd, if you're always available to the things that fill your life, and you never step back to rest, to breathe, to receive, what you have to give starts to grow a little thin. But you never sense what Jesus has to give grows thin. You sense there's always a potency. How? Why? How does this work? I think it's at least in part rooted in this rhythm that Jesus often withdraws from the crowd, and as I said, I think for the sake of the crowd. From the Father, he receives that which he will give as he engages. He withdraws, the text says, to lonely places. Don't we live in a noisy world, a crowded world? Don't you sometimes feel like it's hard to find a place to think? Jesus may not have lived in a world with iPhones and computers and social media, but he lived in a very community-dense world, a world where the crowds kept coming and kept wanting something from him. And so to step away the way he did, sometimes he had to do it early in the morning or late at night or just sneak away. Why does he do this? I think at least in part he withdraws to lonely places because it's in the places of solitude and silence that we remember who we are. We're tempted to think the crowd tells us who we are. They're thrilled about everything we're doing. Hooray, now I feel better. But sometimes the crowd doesn't like what you're doing. It sure was true for Jesus, wasn't it? And one day they're yelling and screaming Hosanna, and a minute later they're saying crucify. It's a very dangerous thing when you let the crowd give you your name. Jesus doesn't do this. He withdraws to lonely places. To do what? Luke says, to pray. What does that mean? Well, we all have a sense of what in the world it would perhaps look like to step away, be alone, and pray. I love that one of my mentors would often say that prayer is not mainly a thing you do. Prayer is mainly someone you're with. It's not mostly a practice. It's mostly a relationship you're cultivating. That's why when Paul says something like, Pray always, there's something in that of live your life in the light of God's continual, loving, gracious presence. Learn how to cultivate that kind of interactive, conversational relationship. I really think this is at the heart of what God's inviting us to. I think this is the soil in which our lives and our good work grows, Jesus withdraws to lonely places to pray. And then I think when he teaches us, he actually invites us to do the same kind of thing. Think about the line in his Sermon on the Mount. He said, when you pray, go into your room, close the door, pray to your Father who is unseen, and then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you close the door, pray in secret, to me echoes the sense that Jesus withdrew. Jesus went to the secret place. Jesus closed the door. Jesus gave himself time to be alone in the presence of his Father. When you pray is sort of the assumption that it's something perhaps we'll do often. I sometimes wonder what Jesus was doing in those times of prayer when he was alone and quiet. And I imagine that maybe one of the things he was doing is remembering once again the voice that had launched his life in ministry. He's bapti- being baptized by John in the Jordan at the beginning of the gospel. He rises from the water, and what happens next? There's a voice. What does the voice say? You're my son. I love you. I'm so pleased with you. A lot of us live our lives trying to earn those words. But Jesus receives them as a gift at the very beginning of his ministry. They are not a paycheck for Jesus to earn. They are a gift that Jesus receives and I think keeps receiving just as I think we need to. You will live a better life and you will do better work from a place of confidence about who you are than you will, desperately trying to prove who you are. And the irony is, the thing we try to prove is like trying to prove something that is just as plain as the nose in your face. There's no need to prove, God already loves us. Go to the Sunday School, this is what we're talking about, some of the most important things we learn when we withdraw to the lonely place, like Jesus does, to pray. So, an unhurried life is lived at the pace of prayer. It's also a life lived at the pace of grace. Pace of prayer, pace of grace. Uh, A couple of years ago, I wrote a little book called Inhaling Grace. And the first line of that book is The grace of God is the atmosphere of his kingdom. We live by inhaling grace. Grace is one of those words that can become so familiar that we miss the depth and the breadth of its practical and moment-to-moment meaning for our lives. It can become an important word for theology and then somehow fail to be a central word for living. Or it can be a word that speaks to us of acceptance and forgiveness, which we so need, but we can miss the fact that grace is strong and transforming in our lives. One of my mentors helped me understand the message of grace, especially in the New Testament. He once took a number of months and just remember the things called concordances back in the ancient times? Big, thick books that would tell you where a word showed up in the Bible. kind of a thing. You can just do that on your little device now. But He just went through all about 130-some references to grace in the New Testament reflected, read, thought, prayed, and at the end of these months, he came to a conclusion. He said, what surprised me was that there were a few references that spoke of how we enter into this life of faith, this kingdom life. The Ephesians 2.8 sort of, we are saved by grace sort of meaning. Like grace as a doorway, and isn't that good news? You know, when I was in this huge gathering and there was a guy named Billy Graham up front, you know, he invited us all, any of us who wanted to come forward, and I did. What he was talking about sounded good, but no one asked me for my resume. Nobody interviewed me to see if I deserved to be there. I was saved as a gift. It was something I could only offer empty hands and receive. We're saved by grace. But what my mentor said is, what surprised me was that far and away the majority of the references to grace in the New Testament. We're not talking about a doorway we step through, but a pathway on which we walk. Not step number one, but step number two, number three, and number four, and for the rest of our lives. Grace is a way of living this life in Christ we've been given. He often said that just as surely as we're saved by grace, we live by grace and we serve by grace and we work by grace and we lead by grace and you you could just keep going that grace is God's empowering presence it is God's generosity to us that we are constantly recipients of as a young Christian I had this weird idea about what my relationship to grace would look like the older I got I began to follow Jesus as a 17 year old and I, I had made a lot of dumb choices in high school. So I imagined I needed lots of grace at 17. And somehow in my mind, as I looked down the tunnel of getting older, I imagined maybe someday when I was 60, like I am now, someday I'll hardly need any grace at all. I'll just I'll get things together, I'll figure stuff out, I'll solve all my issues, And, you know, like grace will somehow be like the spare tire in my trunk. I'm glad I have it, but I probably don't need it. Has that been your experience? The amount of grace I needed as a 17-year-old, minuscule compared to now 40-some years later, I need grace every moment of my life. There is never a moment I don't need God to be generous. There is never a moment I don't need God to be a guide. There's never a moment I need, that I don't need God to be present to me. Dallas Willard, Willard liked to say, saints need a lot more grace than sinners do. Because grace is more than a message of forgiveness. It is, but it's so much more. Grace is how God changes us. Grace is how God guides us. Grace is is like the breath in our lungs. It's like the blood in our veins. It's it's who God is generously present with us as we do anything. So an unhurried life is a life of prayer, that lived at the pace of prayer. It's lived at the pace of grace. And third, it is a life lived at the pace of peace. We live in a time, don't we, where peace seems really hard to come by. I don't know what your experience of this last year and a half has been like. It's perhaps been one of the most anxious seasons of my adult life, to be frank. I went from enjoying traveling all over the world, talking about some of these sorts of things with leaders on most of the continents, to making a daily 32-step commute from my bedroom to an office downstairs. And then rinse and repeat. Had to completely re- revise everything I was doing. It was stressful. It was hard. It was disorienting. It was disappointing. It was, it was anxiety-producing for me. I come by it sort of honestly, not to blame. But my mom grew up in a post-World War II orphanage. You grow up in an orphanage, you learn anxiety. Does that surprise anybody? I don't think so. That little girl becomes a mom, and that mom has a firstborn son. And so I got excellent training in anxiety growing up. Now, as I said, I'm now 60. I'm not blaming my mother for anything. I get to decide what I'm going to do with the anxiety that bubbles up in me rather frequently. And the same is true for you. One of the things that helped me a great deal was when a friend of mine... He said this, and I, this one comes back to me often. You know that anything you could do in anxiety, you could do far better in peace. Anything you could do driven by anxiety, you could do far better led by peace. And the first time I heard that sentence, I'll be honest, I'm not sure I bought it. I thought, you know, anxiety drives me. It keeps me going. It moves me. It it makes me reach high standards. I don't know if I'll care if I lose my anxiety. Except that maybe Jesus is right about it. Maybe it doesn't make me an inch taller. Maybe it doesn't make my life a minute longer. Maybe it doesn't improve a single thing I do. Maybe it doesn't bear good fruit. Maybe it's not a fruit of the Spirit. I'm pretty sure in the list... Anxiety is not there and peace is, right? If my anxiety is fuel, then it's fuel that burns dirty. And it has a way of fouling me, my own inner life. It has a way of messing up my relationships. And frankly, it has a way of coloring my work in a way that doesn't, doesn't help. But peace is sustainable fuel, When I work from peace, I'm more creative. I have better perspective. I have much better energy. I have much better insight. I do way better work from peace than I ever did in the past from anxiety. Maybe Jesus is right about it. You may remember that one of his great pieces of counsel about anxiety when he said, don't be anxious for anything, again, back in the Sermon on the Mount, he recommended a very particular activity Bird watching, right? Look at the sparrow. Look at the, so look at the birds of the air. They don't sow, they don't reap, they don't store away in barns. And yet somehow your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you even more valuable than they are? So I've taken this counsel quite literally. And so in our backyard we have a hummingbird feeder and an oriole feeder and a seed feeder and a thistle feeder and like every feeder we could find Because during COVID, when all I can do is look out my backsliding door at a table set up as my desk, I watch the birds. And they have been mentoring me. For the most part, they don't look anxious. Now, the hummingbirds look a little frantic, you know, and the, the crows just sound angry. But mostly, they do not look anxious. They're not apparently frantically worried about their next paycheck or the next bill or how their investments are faring in the current environment. I don't see them out there planting gardens or harvesting a crop. I don't see little silos against the back fence of what they're storing up for future use. It's smart, of course, to do things like this, but Jesus' point was these birds have a relationship with God that is purely on the basis of grace. I look back there, and there's a bird drinking from one of my sprinklers. He's found the drink he needs. He didn't earn it. He didn't produce it. He didn't deserve it. It's just there for him. Some of the birds are at the feeder. Some are on the lawn, but they're all finding breakfast okay. Maybe anything you could do in anxiety, you really could do better in peace. Peace you might find that if anxiety has been a familiar companion, you could say, thank you, but I think I can take it from here. You could decide that walking with a prince of peace would be far more encouraging and inviting and energizing and fruitful than a life driven by anxiety ever has been. And so an unhurried life is a life lived at the pace of prayer, at the pace of grace, at the pace of peace, and finally, maybe most centrally, a life lived at the pace of love. I think the easiest way to say this is that love can't be hurried. You can't love people in a rush. They rarely feel loved when you're going by at about 70, right? Right? My wife finds it much nicer if I stop and listen and give her my full attention than if I sort of say hello on my way by to the more important thing I'm heading for. Right? Think of the stories when Jesus and his disciples are on their way somewhere. The disciples seem to be very goal oriented, they want to get to the place they're going, and Jesus seems to be very people oriented. He's willing at times to stop for the one apparently at the cost of the thing out ahead that they'd planned for. I'm not saying he always does this, but he seems to have a knack for knowing when the Father's inviting him to stop. See, I found when I'm busy, I sort of imagine that my life is sort of a a long list of things I have to manage. Thing, 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 thing. But when I slow down a little bit, I begin to realize that my life is actually full of people that I get to love and be loved by. My life is full of the presence of God with me all the time. And the things, because we all have things we manage, things we do, things that fill our days. The reason the things matter is because they help people. That's what makes the things matter. I can think of seasons 20 or 30 years ago where my days were full of things that I now cannot remember. But I can remember the people by face, by name. The, the way those things helped people is what matters. It's what it always matters because an unhurried life is lived at the pace of love. And sometimes love feels inefficient. It feels like getting things done is more important. Jesus tells a story in the Gospels that I think illustrates the unhurried nature of love. Remember the story of the Good Samaritan? Samaritans generally were the bad guys in Jewish stories. And yet somehow Jesus tells a story where the Samaritan clearly is the good guy in this story. Because he's the one, when he sees this broken, beaten man on the side of the road, he stops. And he bandages the wounds with his own oil and wine. And he carries the man to an inn. I guarantee you this wasn't in his calendar when he started the day. But he saw a need. And like Jesus, he knew the Father was inviting him to stop and care for that very practical present need. Love your neighbor just means love the people who cross your path. Love the people who are close enough to care for you. You can't love the whole world. God is good at that. But you can love your neighbor. You can love the one who's there, and this Samaritan does. He carries the man to an inn. He stays with the man to care for him overnight. He he gives the man enough money to care for this guy for a couple of days, and he plans and promises a return trip. Love is unhurried, and love is the great commandment. The great commandment has never been get more things done. But if you would have looked at my life along the way, you would think that was my operating great commandment, as I managed things and, and ran past people to get more things done, then an unhurried life is lived at the pace of the great commandment, which remains unchanged regardless of technology, regardless of our devices. The great commandment is still God's great priority. It is God's mission statement. It is even God's operating system. Love. And you just can't love people in a hurry. It doesn't feel like love when you're rushing by. But if we can stop at times in the midst of our busy days of important activities, often God-given, but if we can remember what matters in our days are the people who cross our path people alongside whom we work, the people perhaps that we supervise, those for whom perhaps we work, those who live in our immediate proximity in the neighborhood, our husbands and wives, our sons, our daughters, our parents, our grandparents, the neighbors, the ones nearby. The great commandment is to love God because we're loved first by God. And then that filling our lives spills out in a life lived for the good of our neighbor, a life where the overflow of God's generous grace and abundant love then touches the lives of other, others, we, we have to slow down to let that life be cultivated in us. And so an unhurried life is a life lived at the pace of prayer, at the pace of grace, at the pace of peace and at the pace of love. And I just wonder as I close if there's one of those four that seems to ring truest for you in your present experience. Maybe it's the pace of prayer. How might Christ be inviting you to slow down to the pace of relationship, to the pace of listening, to the pace of presence? How might God be inviting you just a little more deeply into the conversational relationship with him that he absolutely treasures? Like any good father, he absolutely treasures your presence and conversation with you. So maybe it's the pace of prayer, or perhaps you're drawn to the pace of grace. How might Jesus be inviting you to see the whole of your life as a gift to be received and enjoyed rather than a great deal of work you're doing for him. Maybe your work is energized and guided by the generosity of God. Maybe you're drawn to the pace of grace. Or it could be the pace of peace. How might God be inviting you to the idea that peace would be a better engine for your life. Peace would be a better source of creativity and energy and vision and direction for whatever it is you do in your Mondays and Tuesdays and Wednesdays. That being a non-anxious person wherever you went might make a bigger difference than you could ever possibly imagine. The ability, because you're relaxed inside, to give another person your full attention. That's rare in our world. You could be the one giving that to others. Or finally, do you feel especially invited to a life lived at the pace of love? Kosuke Koyama, who's a Japanese theologian, once said in a book titled, Three Mile an Hour God. (laughs) Is that a great book title? Three miles an hour, which, of course, is the speed at which we leisurely walk. A three-mile-an-hour God. He says, God walks slowly because he's love. If he isn't love, he'd go much faster. But love has its speed. It's an inner speed. It's a spiritual speed. It's a different kind of speed from the technological speed to which we are all accustomed. It's slow but it's Lord of every other speed because it's the speed of love. God is inviting us to slow down to his pace. The pace of prayer, the pace of grace, the pace of peace, the pace of love. This is how God walks with us, This is how God invites us to walk with him and with those who cross our paths. I'd like to take a moment to close our time prayerfully. Okay, would you join me? I thank you for these, friends, those in the building, those joining us by the live stream. You are just as present to each one of us. And for that we say thank you Help us to see that you are slowing down to give us your full attention. You are present to us, to have a conversation with us, to be generous with us, to guard our hearts and minds from every worry that tempts us, and perhaps mostly, to love us first. May we find that as we see you in your own unhurried way, that we would find ourselves hungry to be students of your way, hungry to live this way in the world in which you've planted us. In this hurried world in which we live, may we sense the strong and gentle voice of God in Christ drawing us more deeply into his unhurried pace of prayer, of grace, of peace, and of love. This I pray in the name of the Father and of the Son